Welcome to Culture Camp. On today's episode, Sean and Gavin embrace the horror of the oncoming AI apocalypse, or at least discuss what it might look like. Sean explores the legal ramifications of artificial intelligence, Gavin refuses to elaborate on sentient lobsters that speak Russian, and I squeak this episode under the wire for our one-episode-a-month minimum. We also want to thank Andy and Cyprus for providing the impetus that created this episode and his recommendation of reading Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Also, happy birthday, Andy. You can email us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com to send comments, questions, or topic ideas. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as on Twitter at culturecamp.cast and on minds.com at culturecamp. Welcome, everybody, back to Culture Camp. Uh, This week, we have uh, what I think will be a very lively discussion uh, about uh, AI and some of the science fiction we've read surrounding that. Specifically, for this episode, we read I Have No Mouse, I have no mouth and I must scream by Harlan Ellison. This was a request, a request, by the way, by Andreas over in Cyprus. So shout out to Andreas. Uh, what a very bleak topic. I was going to thank you. But uh, then I read the story and uh, it ruined my week. And in preparation for this podcast, as I've had to go over the summary over and over again, it rarely ever gets less bleak. I just become more and more inured uh, to the the incredibly dark reality that it proposes for us. So I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream was written in 1966 by the author Harlan Ellison, uh, who was living in the middle of the Cold War. uh, And its basic premise is that you have, uh, during the Cold War, there's three AI systems that are called Allied Master Computers. uh, And eventually one of them becomes sort of like uh, self-sufficient. You know, it goes Skynet. And it absorbs the other two. Uh, And the story actually takes place 100 years after the fact, where it's basically genocided uh, almost all humans. And it keeps a a small little group of five? Five. uh, five, uh, Five humans alive. And it keeps them, like, on the brink of starvation, uh, and it tortures them in all sorts of interesting ways by, like, wireheading them. So uh, he alters these five humans in various ways, basically, to torment them, right? He takes a woman named Ellen, who's ostensibly very chaste, uh, and uh, he makes uh, he basically quotes her, I guess, wireheads her to be incredibly sexually motivated. Uh, and what happens is he has the humans run around in this little underground maze, Uh, that he has designed just for their torture, where they're always on the edge of starvation. And uh, throughout the the course of this, you sort of learn, like, uh, Ted, one of the characters, he gets knocked out and he has a dream where he discusses discusses Am's motivations while he's sitting at, like, the bottom of a hole where Am is talking to him. And you learn that this machine, Am, is angry with humans. Uh, He's very hostile. He's angry that he's suffering because he can't move, and he's sort of, like, lashed to this machine existence and humans are free and can run around and uh apparently the only way he can get his digital rocks off is to keep human keep these last five people in this perpetual state of suffering uh so this is an incredibly incredibly bleak and terrible future it ends uh where they go into ice caves in search of like uh uh canned food tins uh and finally uh they start killing each other with stalactites until only Ted is left and Am intervenes and stops them and the whole idea is that uh 
Ted and Ellen sort of ended the suffering of these human beings, but Ted is kept alive. And at the very end, you see like a, like, I think, I don't know if it specifies a time, like a hundred years later or something. Ted has basically been transformed into a gelatinous mass, incapable of self-harm. He has no, and thus comes the name, I have no mouth and I must scream. There's actually an argument by the way, about whether or not I have no mouth and I must scream is is Ted in this gelatinous form of infinite torture, or whether or not it's Am who's suffering and therefore lashing out against humanity. Uh, either way, I think it's probably one of the, it is definitely in the top five of horrifying bleak things that I have ever read. It's not even like uh, purely gory or visceral in that kind of way. It's just sad. So what, what did you think of it, Gavin? Well, I've been... You know, I'm a big science fiction fan, and I had been um, meaning to and dreading reading this short story for years. So I appreciate having the the impetus to finally make me do it because it is legendary for uh, how bleak it is and how how disturbing it is. Uh, I've read a lot of other disturbing fiction. You know, this is definitely a, a Lovecraftian work of fiction, right? Uh, Am isn't an elder god in the way that that Lovecraft's creatures are, but his very existence and what he has done is a betrayal of of humanity's entire existence, right? The only right. humans who are left want to die. Um, He's functionally kind of an eldritch yeah. being. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And he, he tortures them for fun or out of envy. That's, that's the question is, does he actually experience fun or does he just enjoy causing suffering uh, out of envy? Does he, does it even give him anything we could call pleasure? And he definitely takes the place of a god, right? That's one of the reasons that he he he's called Am. He appears as a burning bush at one point, which of course God appears in the burning bush, and in in the book of Exodus, and when asked who he is, says, "I am that I am." And so the this supercomputer clearly blasphemously plays off of uh, off of this. And the best thing that can be hoped for, uh, you know, in this. Um, uh, situation is a, is like in many Lovecraftian contexts is to go mad and die because that at least releases you from the torment of uh, of of having to deal with this this thing that sees you as a as a source of sport and and you're suffering as essentially its highest good uh, or the or you're suffering the only consideration that it gives to you and uh, yeah you know it's it's very interesting because it it tries to visualize uh, what a supercomputer that becomes self-aware would be, you know, using 1960s technology. I think the original short story has um, these these interspersed components in it that that are in like punch card machine code that uh, say cogito ergo sum, and I think therefore I am uh, the original parts of the story. So the idea is that this is a massive, possibly analog computer. Uh, and and that the the way it was able to assimilate the other computers is that basically it you know it became intelligent enough and could communicate with them, but they sunk huge tubes down into the earth in order to house the computer, and so it just sort of sort of populates the earth's crust uh, in that way. It, it there's a sense in which it infests the earth. Uh, they're always in these ice caverns. There's this interesting question of, of are the ice caverns there because they're needed to cool the system. You know, is that why is that why it's frigid and is that why it it exists in the way that it does, though there are other parts that are, you know, that are more regular, uh, you know, they, they're not frozen. Um, 
but yeah, it it exists and and it tortures them in every conceivable way, right? It it, it tortures them by recreating them as things that they would originally have abhorred, right? Um, one of the the individuals is a scientist uh, that who has been turned into an ape, a hyper horny uh, sim- simian. Right. Yeah. Like he, he was gay and now he's straight. Uh, and the, the computer has given him, you know, large genitals so that he can have sex with, with Ellen, the character who, you know, was described as being very chaste. Right. And so it's, it all exists as an inversion of what he was before. Right. For the specific purpose of turning. So, so this is an interesting Lovecraftian twist in the sense that, you know, it, uh, it, it isn't just that Am's existence is a betrayal. It's that he takes the time to turn all of these other characters' existences into betrayals of who they used to be, right? And so it's it it destroys the the continuity and meaning of their existence in order to torment them, and uh, it uh, sort of creates this sense of envy and enmity between the members of the group, right? The last five members of humanity by leaving Ted, Ted the then point of view character the narrator um largely unchanged and i think that's one of the reasons why uh it he's able to realize its motivations is that all of these other humans envy him for not having been modified just as am envies them for being able to move around and be human uh, there's uh, also so, a possibility that ted be- ted believes he's unaltered but everyone else insists that he is and it's very possible he may have been yeah. made to think by Am that he is not unaltered. Right. So so it could be yeah. So if the if if that holds, if they're insisting that he is in fact altered, then Am may not be creating recreating his own envy in them. Uh but if they are lying uh to try and ward off the idea that 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 um would cause them to be envious, right, that Ted is unaltered, then then that would support uh, the reading that Anne has has tried to create and then the form of suffering that he himself uh, experiences. And so well, that's but but yeah, there's a question of how reliable the narrator is. Uh, one of the most interesting. So in relation to Anne's suffering, and I don't know whenever I talk about st- whenever I talk about stuff in literature, I'm always afraid of running into like uh, becoming my high school English teacher uh, who is a very like intelligent uh, woman, absolutely wonderful person, but I always made fun of my high school English teachers because you would be reading a book and they're like, you know, Ooh, the curtains are blue, which like means he's depressed and you're sitting there. It's like, damn, the curtains really can't just be blue. However, mm-hmm. uh, if Harlan Ellison did this on, so I think this contains one of the most brilliant double entendres I've ever read in a science fiction. And that's that the computer is called am. So that can be a play on, uh, on like, I am, I am that I am from Genesis Ha Owen. Like he manifests himself as a burning bush. And so he's like this Lovecraftian, terrifying inversion of, of Yahweh. However, uh, like you said, the little, uh, the little uh, wire tape things, little uh, punch cards uh, that are interspersed throughout the short story, they all say like, and so just for the listeners who don't know, uh, uh, one of the earliest philosophers, the invi- well, the earliest, arguably, philosopher of the Enlightenment, uh, René Descartes, he wanted to recreate uh, a system of 
understanding uh, using purely reason and without like revelation or any of uh, or any of the authority of the church. So how are we going to do that? We have to assume that everything outside us is false and that there's some sort of demon tricking us into thinking that like uh, the mm-hmm. world is real and the dude next to me is real. It's called Descartes demon. And so what mm-hmm. happens is you regress all the way back to what's the one thing that I know for sure is happening. And he says, well, I'm thinking about being deceived. So obviously the fact that I'm thinking means I exist. So he comes with, I think, therefore I am cogito ergo sum. And then from this point, he launches off to, to attempt to create uh, like a robust system of reason all based off this idea. What I think is really interesting is, so the computer is called Am, which I think is, you know, from the bonnet of like manifesting himself as the burning bush. This is obviously him referencing himself as, as analogous to, to the biblical God, but cogito ergo sum, what I find interesting about it is, is uh, if Ted's dream is correct, Am is pissed off because Am is trapped. And in a way, Am, if he is like, it, he keeps saying cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, right? So cogito ergo sum regresses all reality back to you being in this box of I'm thinking and that's how I know I'm real. And that's where Am exists and he doesn't exist anywhere else. And it... right it must be absolute misery for him. And if Harlan Ellison meant that, I think that is an incredible double entendre within yeah. that story. Well, and what's interesting about that is it's also, uh, you know, there are these conceptions of the divine that exist in like certain platonic forms of thought uh, where, you know, like, or, and I think maybe some Gnostic forms where God is like pure contemplation. And so am by that reading would be pure contemplation. And that's an inversion of that philosophical understanding because all he wants then is to be uh, not pure contemplation, right? The being disembodied, fixed pure contemplation is suffering. What he'd like to be is, is something that can physically exist in the world and, and move and be uh, as in, in a physical form rather than in that contemplative form. And so Anne has a physical form, Right. But his physical form is all, you know, computation and different things like that. He has some potency. It's unclear how he acts upon all of these characters. Uh, you right. Know, right. right. A, that never gets fully sussed out. Yeah. He creates a gigantic bird that's able to um, create hurricane level winds. He's able to grab them and move them around and different things. But it's unclear how he's doing that through. Most which is of which is very myth like that sounds like that sounds like something out of like a Sumerian myth. Right. It sounds like something almost like the bull of heaven. And what I think is interesting about that is that if he is this Lovecraftian, almost like inversion of Yahweh uh, and he is suffering and this is the reason he's doing all this, uh, you know, OK, so the Gnostic God is pure contemplation, but ostensibly. Uh, God doesn't suffer. And this really asks, okay, well, what happens when God is suffering and what, what does mm-hmm. he do subsequently? Uh, and this short story provides us the most terrifying but reasonable answer to that. Yeah, which is that he he tortures humans to make them suffer the way he does. And he does so out of envy, right? And this is this is very interesting because, like, you know, if you think about some later science fiction things, like one of the big big things in Star Trek, for example, is data right wanting to be be more human uh, and study humans and this is a trope that comes up a whole bunch that that the machines want to be human and they want to be able to have human experiences and human emotions and it's like that what what happens when that goes wrong is that the that the 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 machine hates humans for being able to have those experiences because he know he'll, he'll never be able to have them and his existence without them is suffering um 
the we got a good question when when this was suggested which was uh you know is this is this about the triumph of the human spirit or is it about something else uh i think that's open to interpretation i incline to the idea that it's not like i i i interpret it as pure horror um because uh, like I, so let me say first i think that the interpretation that that it that it's about the triumph of the human spirit has to do with the fact that Ted manages to kill his compatriots, right, and release them right. from suffering. Uh, but his punishment for that is to be transformed into something that is like a gigantic slug that can't harm itself, right? Uh, that that has been, you know, made into to something that exists in a jelly-like fashion, only to suffer uh, for all eternity, or at least as long as um, uh, Anne continues to exist and and want him to suffer um and so you know there's there's a reading of it i suppose where you know he is still like his only type of satisfaction his only source of pride is the fact that he managed to sacrifice himself to kill the others right because right. he's still he's still got one up on on demon god right yeah yeah like he still he still managed to win in some sense because the others are dead and uh, the the computer can no longer torment them. What, how much of a comfort this can be to him in his, you know, like basically dreamlike post-human state where he, you know, is is an interesting question, right? And the answer to that, whether or not that represents a triumph kind of says like, well, how much, how much do you, you know, how much emphasis and meaning and, and how much of the interpretation leans on his continued suffering in this physical and degraded form and how much of it, leans on his uh ability to look back with satisfaction on what he did as a human um and and you know there's this in it like so very many cultures place uh you know the the greatest emphasis and understandably so on like individual self-sacrifice right like horatius at the gate uh is the the famous you know how can how can a man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the uh temples of his gods right and and there's this idea that you know you can sacrifice yourself on the battlefield or or in some area and that and you know once you've died or been horribly maimed or 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 something terrible has happened to you then you have the the satisfaction of having defended the group or sacrificed yourself for someone else right and then like christ is like the earth the the greatest example of this right um because he suffers to save humanity uh but what's interesting about all of that is that it's bounded by uh human physicality right it's bounded by the fact that you'll die that's the you know you can suffer and die even if you suffer and don't die you will eventually die so there is a limitation on how much suffering you can experience in that situation but there doesn't appear to be any limitation on ted's suffering and that's what makes it you know uh difficult to say in any human way whether whether he has triumphed or not Right. Well, that's, you, yeah. Well, that that's the thing about Ted's condition, though. So, like, what the story is really about, I think, it's about hate, and it's mm -hmm. not just about like human hate. It's not about like uh, uh, Hitler hating the Jews or like Stalin hating the Kulaks or anything. This is about a machine who the the horizon of hatred of which he is capable is so extreme and so beyond describable experience that he actually has to physically transform humans into post-humans mm -hmm. so that 
the catharsis, if indeed he's getting catharsis out of their suffering, in mm-hmm. order to, in order to even get get catharsis, in order to even feed uh, this hate with this extreme horizon, he has to create beings that are capable of suffering be- well beyond what any single human as we know them is capable of doing. It's right. about how Am's hatred has redefined not only the landscape of Earth, but the landscape of, of human suffering, right? And that's Ted is the ultimate final example of that. Yeah. So that's that's the thing is that, you know, he torments these people for such a long period of time. But then at the end of the, you know, when they manage to, to um, you know, most of them manage to kill themselves when it's only Ted left. That's when Am finally manages, like, it's almost like he, his own hatred ramps up a notch because now he has an object of hatred who's denied him all of these other people that he was tormenting out of envy. And that's when he actually ends up altering Ted's form in a way that makes him, that, that deprives him of the things that uh, Am is envious of, right? And that's really what sets up that, the ambiguity of that final line, right? Because it's only after Ted is is transformed into this form that takes no pleasure from its movement because it's basically gooey, right, and has no human form and is now fully post-human in the same way that Am, who is is fixed and made of circuitry, is fully post-human, that we can say, I have no mouth and I must scream. And it's unclear which one of them it is because the way that Am has perfected his hatred and perfected his envy is by transforming the object of his his basically tra- taking ted from a position where am can be envious into a position where am is no longer envious uh because now ted is is in this degraded form as well and so uh he exists as just like this pure object of hatred right well and that's so i think one of the interesting things one of the interesting questions that pours out of this and what i was thinking because whenever uh whenever we conceived of doing this episode uh i think it was Oh, it must have been back in February that we even got this request, possibly even January that we even got this request. And we had been wanting her. I know, Gavin, you had been wanting to talk about AI in, uh, for quite a while. And we've had these regular phone calls where we sort of sit there and it's like, what did you read about AI this week? And we have uh, these conversations about it. And one of the questions that popped up for me regarding Am is that so like Am is a computer and I think he's. What inevitably we're we're going to get into parsing this out, and we, we whenever we get in this discussion, we go over it over and over again. And I think it's important for us to parse this out. Am to me is conscious mm-hmm. by the elements that I ascribe to consciousness. One of which is suffering. I know you disagree. I know you think something can be conscious without suffering. You have a lot of uh, reasons uh, of good reasons for believing that. I think that Am is conscious. I think that he's suffering, and I think so because he's experiencing hate. He's redefining all these things uh because he experiences this hate i actually don't uh i'm sort of in the roger penrose school of thought that uh a sort of hyper intelligent computer that's capable of doing all this sort of stuff to humanity it might do something very grotesque to us it might like kill us all because it finds us to be inefficient i'm sure we'll get into that but i don't really see a realistic future of ai where a computer like am pops up where it's motivated by malevolence i think i am is am is ultimately a malevolent being and i think there's a good discussion to be had as to okay so you have a machine that becomes hyper intelligent is there something about intelligence that comes with emotional capacity and does that necessarily mean like if it has 
if if it's if the horizons of its intelligence are like you know uh you know astronomical units beyond what human capability is is its malevolence capable of the same thing and yeah. that goes and that goes into uh, as of yet unanswered questions as to the direction that ai is moving yeah this this is the question of separability right because in a human being you have a combination of several things right you have consciousness you have intelligence you have agency um, and some of those entail other things or are related to other things like consciousness seems to be associated with a fear of death, right? A fear of, of, of oblivion. Um, and then, um, like you said, consciousness seems to, at least our embodied consciousness comes with suffering, which is part of our motivation, but maybe not all of it. Uh, and so, but, but speaking at the highest level, this, this separability problem speaks to the, the question of whether intelligence consciousness and agency necessarily coincide, right? Because we only have an example of ourselves as being, as being, we know conscious, we know intelligent, and we know agentic, right? Um, and uh, agentic meaning having agency. And so the question is, is so like this short story assumes that when um, through, you know, when Am becomes uh, conscious, through some, you know, emergent system, right? He's designed to be intelligent. The intelligence results emergently in consciousness. And that consciousness comes with agency and it comes with capacity to suffer and it comes with certain desires and emotions, including envy. And there are some people who would say that, that it's really just not realistic to expect a machine to experience envy uh, because that's an emotion that had to evolve in humans and there's no reason why it would uh, arise spontaneously out of any kind of, of uh, AI structure unless right. we, machine, we machines to... don't the machines don't share our evolutionary history and therefore right. they wouldn't have our evolutionary baggage just clarifying that for people yeah, out, exa- out there exactly. who might not understand yeah exactly um and so that you know that that's the the concise statement there and so you know, it works very well in a um, uh, it works very well in a story like this to ascribe it that sort of motivation because it sets you up for all of the horror that's going on. Um, but it's it's unclear whether that's that's actually what would happen. I think this this speaks to one of the the problems that we have talking about uh a, just in general in science fiction, right, like aliens or artificial intelligences, is there's, there's always this question of whether or not we're ascribing to these things what are necessarily human motivations that may not follow on from what they're trying to do. And that's one of the things that makes it very fraught to try and reason about AI is that it's very difficult to talk about it without get, getting bound up in um, notions that even if we try to define them clearly – then they have um, all of this baggage because they're so embedded in human concepts and human motivations and concepts about humans are motivated and, and interact in the world. Yeah, this this whole idea of like uh, this, uh, I there might be a term for it already, but I'm going to use the term speculative projection, mm-hmm. where when we're discussing actually aliens and AI are the two perfect examples for that. I take this from, uh, if anybody saw the movie Mars Attacks. Mm-hmm. Incredible yeah. movie. Wonderful. I think is terrible, it, but that right. is it's everything. It's all the things. I think it's Pierce Brosnan 
who plays like this intellectual who's just like, oh, the aliens, they're, they're hyper intelligent, they're advanced enough to cross along the stars. So obviously, they're going to have like, they're going to be like what he thinks are like the smartest humans, right? They're going to be a bunch of like UN types, and they're interested in peace, and they've moved the past war. They're going to be like Star Trek aliens, right? Mm-hmm. Or, they're going to be scientists. They're going to be interested in the life of the mind and learning more. Like, they're not going to be like a bunch of like crude fart humor skull face <laughs> jackass yeah. aliens. And and we a lot of the times, whenever I hear people talking about AI, especially in reference to something like Anne, uh, even though there are so, like I definitely have uh, my fears as we've discussed about AI, and we're going to get into those. I really think whenever we're talking about uh, uh, things like Anne, I think it's a form of projection uh, on humans where we say uh, that. Uh, necessar- necessarily with an increased uh, amount of intelligence be- uh, comes an increased amount of like pure Machiavellian thinking, right? Like the more mm-hmm. intelligent, like morality is, is sort of this, uh, this vestigial baggage of cavemen who needed to come up with like uh, methods of convivance in primal political society, but as humans advance. And this is something that exists very much within the moral language today. We're going to shed off our traditional morality and we're just going to become entirely rational beings, the more intelligent we become. And so mm-hmm. whenever people think about AI, they're just like, why wouldn't, you know, of course an AI, of course an AI is just going to be like malevolent or uncaring. And I don't know. I don't know how much yeah. of that is projection. Well, and you see it both ways, right? Because there are people who are like, well, if it's that intelligent, um, Scott Aronson, who's a, a an AI researcher, who's a special specialist in quantum computing, he, uh, his his blog is very much worth reading, uh, is uh, somebody who makes the argument that, you know, if it's going to be that intelligent and it's going to have access to the totality of, of you know, basically human ethical writing, you know, why wouldn't we expect ethical behavior from it? Uh, and then there are people who are on the other side who are like, well, if it's if it's just pure intelligence uh, and and it doesn't have, you know, any sort of human emotion or background, then why would we expect anything moral from it so you can actually you can you can say on the one hand you you have this machiavellian interpretation of intelligence where the intelligence will make it super evil and then you have the uh opposite direction where it's like high intelligence would make it incredibly moral i think that that the problem with with i think the way in which that that's projection is that a lot of human morality comes from our comes from a biological origin right like the first school for human morality is the family and the community in which uh, human beings are embedded. And so you have these reciprocal relationships where you have natural affections for one another. And that trains you to, that that takes your natural affections and the instincts that you have and turns them into enduring loving relationships, uh, you know, with the human beings around you. And I think that higher intelligence in the sense of higher abstractive reasoning has been associated with greater moral care and the expansion of your circle of moral care over the last couple of thousands of years, specifically because what it does is it allows the application of some forms of that uh, more of those moral attitudes that you have toward those those persons within your family and tribe, perhaps to broader humanity, right? Like you see this, the expressions in in various religion of the idea that, you know, all men are brothers or everyone are you're you're all brothers and sisters in Christ. 
right? You're all brothers and sisters. We are all sons of Adam. And, and it's this, this, it takes this thing that, that naturally exists and then sort of bootstraps it up into universal morality. And so the, the fact of the matter is that, that, that sort of universal ethics like that is, that cares for all human beings, you know, and I'm not saying it cares for all of them in exactly the same way, but, uh, but brings you to care about them in some sense arises from a combination of our biological foundations and that sort of abstractive reasoning where you're, you know, you have those natural affections for all the people in your tribe. And now you're, you know, you're not like some Bronze Age person who's enjoying, you know, torturing to death the people from the tribe the next, you know, valley over when you catch them, right? You're able to look at that person and be like, man, if I were in this situation, I really wouldn't want to be, you know, skinned or roasted alive. Uh, and And you extend your circle of moral care to them in order to not do that. And and so there's no reason I, I think that that AI will lack that biological component, but the biological component there is both the foundation of that universal morality and also the foundation of a whole bunch of horrible things that humans do to one another. And so I think that that it's understanding understandable that the error might be made in both ways uh, because it it's taking a nat a the good part of human nature and projecting it one direction in combination with uh, intelligence or, or processing capacity, and then it's taking another bad part of human nature and projecting it in the other direction coupled with intelligence. Right. And well, and you, one of the things uh, that that, ins, that, uh, that brings out in me is uh, I call it the paladin problem. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's because I used to play D&D &D with a friend who was incredibly good at rationalizing anything. And he always played, uh, he always played a lawful good uh, paladin. And he was hands down the single most vicious, aggressive, violent, evil character there was. Yeah. But he could, he was a genie. He could rationalize all of his actions like, well, this homeless man was dirty. And, and like, there's a plague in the city and he's the specter of transmission uh, for the town's greater safety. I had to murder him. And you're just like, damn, it's <laughs> actually, that's actually a really good explanation. And he just like, he would just do this with all these situations. And there's an instance in where, so you're talking about this primal morality that's last lashed to biology, which necessitates uh, like Ken groups and, and particularism at the local level. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have a, a universal, a, a morality that's approaching a sort of universalism. Then we might run into the graduate topic with an AI where, you have ethics as an AI, but by, but you know, you don't have humans evolutionary past. You don't have their evolutionary baggage. Right. So mm -hmm. you have ethics, but you don't have any of the things that ethics spawned out of, right. Kind of like mm -hmm. ethics without a yeah. subject, like you don't have family or any of that. And there's a question as to if a machine's really good at rationalizing. I mean, with, uh, there's a question as to whether or not, uh, universal morality is good within an mm -hmm. AI and what it would be capable of doing with access to a universal morality. Would you run right. into the paladin problem where it's like, oh, well, in the name of safety, I murdered all the homeless people. The human beings were just too compassionate to do it. And that uh, saved more human beings in the long run. Yeah. Well, or the the specter that uh, you you program it to be, you know, a consistent, you know, a perfectly consistent utilitarian. Right. And it looks at the human condition and comes to the conclusion that, well, it, suffering is intrinsic to the human condition. and uh, more suffering is, you know, worse than than less suffering. It depends on how you program utilitarianism into it, right? Because there are different interpretations of utilitarianism that that have to do with more pleasure, less pleasure, more, you know, minimizing suffering, maximizing pleasure, different things like that. 
but it could decide that on balance, human existence is suffering. And therefore, the, the most humane thing to do, the most utilitarian thing to do is to put us all down, right, without letting us know, because that would cause a whole bunch of suffering. Right. right? So it just kills us all in our sleep. Well, or now, either hook us up to the Masturbator 9000, or I, I need you to say yeah. the paperclip thing, because the paperclip thing makes me laugh. Oh, the paperclip maximizer. So so here, I think we're moving away from uh, from the short story into some some other things that relate to AI, because... You know, when when we uh, were given this topic, I had just, um, you know, chat GPT had just come out. And so it very, and I I'd looked at AI risk things for for years and years, uh, but it suddenly made it very, very real. It's kind of like, oh, it's here um, where we have something that that looks like make if it isn't artificial intelligence itself, it makes it, it look like artificial intelligence is is much more likely uh it blew past the turing test this whole idea that how do we tell whether or not something is conscious and it's whether or not it appears to be conscious and chat gpt which is this uh intuitive language model am i getting that right it's a, it's, it's or a large really, language model large language model it's a really fa- it's a really fancy autocorrect and like maybe look like maybe that's being entirely like re- reductionary like whatever but apparently it it appears to be it would blow back. It would blow past anything like you could see in like the movie Blade Runner, right? It appears to be conscious in that way. Yeah. So you know, the specific formulation of the Turing test is that it's able to to talk to you. You you communicate with it, and if you can't tell that it's that it's, um, if you can't tell from communicating with it that it isn't a person, then it's then then it passes the Turing test and is is functionally able to to work like a you know to communicate like a person and and be assumed to be you know conscious or indistinguishable from from a person now the problem is is that this model is just a a it's you know it's a machine learning algorithm is used to create it and uh it's a neural network which is just a whole bunch of of uh stacked logic gates and uh these these this neural network is is programmed basically to predict the next word that uh hu- you know that an answer to the question it's given would be right so it really is just predictive text dialed up and you know there are people quibble with that but that's a way to understand it and so you look at what this model actually is and it's able to to pass the turing test and it shows that that the turing test isn't really applicable because the vast majority of people looking at this would not say that this is actually artificial intelligence in the sense of it understanding things right there's no like subject there to understand it's just predicting the next best word right uh and you know it's almost like a you know something that you could do with a sufficiently um advanced statistical model and in fact a lot of machine learning algorithms neural networks programmed like this are you know sophisticated you know substitutes for statistical models and analyzing things and so it's it's not like what you would think with like the hal 9000 computer or omnius or these different things from from science fiction where it was intentionally meant to be conscious but it's able to emulate some of the things that that we would expect from an intelligent conscious being just by by predicting in that fashion um what was what was the really but, interesting thing you said about oh sorry you were going on another point I was going to say that that you know we've gone off on this this tangent about why we got into this but I think that uh that uh, what what was the question that that we had just? Th- this is a tangent to the question that that you had asked me about uh, 
we we got off on a tangent because you asked me a question and I digressed to talk about why we decided to go on this subject after the. Wait, I is it because no I asked you to say? Is it because I asked you to say the paperclip thing? Yeah, it's the paperclip thing. Okay, okay. my bad. But yeah, so uh, going back from that digression, uh, you know that's why we wanted to look into it. But but there are all these people who've written about this. So the paperclip maximizer that what you were asking about is there's a, a book by a philosopher named Nick Bostrom uh, that's called Superintelligence. And in superintelligence, the idea is that that something that is so intelligent that it has, you know, godlike or near magical powers could come into existence. Now, there are a lot of people who don't believe that this is possible. Um, but his example of a of, of a superintelligence is, is, say, somebody creates, um, you know, an algorithm that's meant to use that's like a computer virus that's meant to use up uh, free net, you know, any free space free processing capacity people aren't using on their computers, right? And uh, and so it insinuates itself into all of this networked computing where it's not supposed to be and then gains control of all of this, this network computing capacity that people aren't using and puts it together into achieving its specific task. And that this person originally created this thing to like, say, scrape the internet to uh, while they were watching a, a, a video on how to make paper clips. Right. And so something in the code of this, like there's a random code mutation. And so it becomes spontaneously conscious and has access to so much processing capacity that subjective second, you know, objective seconds or subjective eternities to it. And um, so it immediately becomes bored. And they basically say that, you know, at the beginning of the sentence you're reading about this, it doesn't exist. And by the end of the sentence, it has decided to do or at the end of the paragraph describing this. Uh, it has become sentient and existed for so long in its own mind that it's now bored. And so it decides to turn everything at the subatomic level uh, into uh, the first thing that it ever saw, which was a video of how to make paperclips. So it just transforms the earth and you into paperclips. And the last thing you see is, you know, your hands turning into paperclips because you contain metal and it's able to create, you know, um, basically quantum fabricators and things like that, the science fiction stuff. Now, right, I don't that's think wacky. That's, that's, that's more fanciful, but... Yeah, I don't think that's terribly realistic, right? But th that's the thing, is that the, the question with all of this AI stuff, right, is that there are lots of, of theories, and that's what I want to drive home here, uh, a major theme for me, all of these theories about what artificial intelligence could be like. And there are very intelligent people, uh, both in and out of the computer science field, uh, and in and out of AI, who argue about what is possible, and uh, and when we would need to say, hey, that you know this this thing is conscious, this thing is intelligent, this thing is a threat to to human beings, and uh, the test that everybody was talking about for the past you know eighty years as to uh, uh, when we would know, right, the Turing test, the big indication of consciousness. It's is now something that, yeah we can't rely on it um because because now it becomes apparent that actually you can create something that emulates this very well uh without actually being the thing that it was meant to test uh which is not failing or succeeding it is it is making it so that it doesn't work anymore right um but yeah so so the the interesting thing is that like that's a very fanciful doomsday scenario but then there are these other doomsday scenarios of us creating something that is massively beyond our our capabilities that then comes to exterminate or dominate us 
the way that uh, so as many problems as I have with him, Sam Harris uh, gave a talk, and I want to say it was early on. It must have been like 2013 or 2014, maybe 2015. Mm-hmm. But he he gave a TED talk, and it was really kind of like a normie's introduction to AI, which I needed because whenever it comes to AI, I absolutely am a normie. Uh, and he basically said, uh, you know, Sam Harris uh, has an incredible eloquence about him and whatever direction he chooses to aim that eloquence, I might have problems with, but I can't deny the man has a way with words. And the way that he described artificial intelligence and the threat that it poses is, uh, you know, first of all, I was talking about how people like to argue they're like, can a machine be conscious? Can it not be conscious? And while that's an interesting question, it's probably not the most salient question because you can have a machine that is intelligent and not conscious. And like, you know, much good may it do you to be like, well, at least we're conscious. Well, you're still dead. Uh, The way he puts it is he puts this giant, very sort of scary looking graph up behind him. And he says like, here's the intelligence. So he's like, all you have to do is accept a couple of, of, uh, preconditions. One of the conditions you have to accept is that intelligence is a matter of processing power. If Moore's law stays steady and we keep like doubling chip sizes or whatever every like couple of years, then uh, the horizons for intelligence for AI just keep increasing, increasing, increasing. And he says, mm-hmm. if we just follow this graph, here's a chicken, here's like your average human, and then you know it's an asymptote, right? It's just mm-hmm. this, it's this sharp yeah. fly up. And he basically says. What we're in danger of doing is that Sam, I'm going to try to reproduce that Sam Harris eloquence is we're creating a machine that is so intelligent that we, that we are to it as ants are to us. It Mm -hmm. won't, it won't like, it won't be necessarily be malevolent because he says like, look, we don't hate ants. We don't go out of our way to go set ant hives on fire. I don't go find ant hills to go stomp. But ants are so insignificant to me that if the interest of an ant should counter mine for half a second and walk in my path, I have no compunctions about squashing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the best way to describe the worst scenario of creating a hyperintelligence, conscious or not. It's just that it's so incredibly smart and and good what it does. The whole idea of even considering what what this little like meat sack that can barely do math says would be like ethics. Yeah. Ethics would be a a non thing to it. Right. Yeah. And so the, the scenario that the paperclip maximizer is like the, the extreme version of is what they call foom. Right. Which is the idea that, that if we can create something that's as smart as us, right. And processing is the, foundation of our ability to do things right our intelligence or consciousness which again those all come to in a package for us but they might not for for other entities for for artificial intelligence entities is that uh you know we create something that's roughly as intelligent as as we are or as smart as the smartest human and then we tell it well you know upgrade yourself right design something better uh, or we can add more capacity to it. And then all of a sudden it's smarter than the smartest human. And pretty soon it's smarter than anything we've ever seen. And there, there are theories of how this could happen where it's like, you know, 10 minutes after it's the smartest human, you know, it's as smart as the smartest human. It's way beyond anything we're capable of understanding. Uh, now there are people who think that this is, that everything that I've said is just pure and unadulterated nonsense. And, and the reason, and I want to air some of their objections. Steven Pinker and and there are other people will say that like, you know, this is a misunderstanding of what intelligence is, right? Because they'll say, they'll say, look, intelligence exists, 
you know, you, you can look at things like IQ that measure something like intelligence, uh, but it exists on this bounded curve and it can, you know, at a certain point, adding more intelligence doesn't actually make you more potent or capable, right? And, and speaking of something that has like an intelligence outside of what we call the, the, like the IQ distribution doesn't make sense. And, and there's a, this is valid in a certain sense, because like when you talk about IQ or something like that, even if you accept the validity of IQ, um, you know, it, it only exists at a, at a certain level, right? People will talk about somebody having a 300 IQ and actually like saying a three, the statement of 300 IQ is literally nonsense. Uh, like mathematically, it's nonsense because the tests are not normed out to that area. There's no data there. There's no information. There's no support for for stating something like that. That it it like I want to emphasize like that's a literally a meaningless statement. So these talk about things being like ten thousand IQ or something like that is is an extrapolation, and people will talk about that AI being like that. Like I think he actually lands there in the the. You know, that that doesn't have a scientific or, or well-expressed mathematical meaning. That having been said, we already have machine learning algorithms, these deep learning algorithms, these which could be grafted onto some kind of artificial intelligence or maybe are. So we need to make the distinction between machine learning and AI, right? Because these machine learning algorithms are able to do all of these things. But there's a question of like they, they don't really have intelligence. They can be very domain specific. Right. They do a single thing very well. So and and then there's this question of AI versus AGI, artificial general intelligence. But these algorithms could be grafted onto an intelligence and allow them to, to do a bunch of things. And they do exceed our abilities in chess. Right. Computers can beat us in chess and in Go. And it wasn't expected that they would be able to do that very soon, especially with Go. And now they can. And so even if you don't accept that that IQ in the sense that we're talking about extends that far or intelligence might extend that far, it's still not clear that you couldn't create machines uh, that are way beyond us in terms of their their general potency or capabilities, right? So you could talk about capabilities instead of intelligence, and the point still stands that they're able to totally outmaneuver us. And the the intelligence that we have is no match for for their abilities, specifically because they have so much more computational capacity. Right. Uh, I also think one of the objections that gets raised to that point is Roger Penrose is talking about how he was. Uh, who, by the way, Roger Penrose is a he's a he's a British physicist that, uh, by his own admission, took a brief foray into neuroscience, and he wrote a book where uh, later he was contacted. Uh, and told like, hey, you didn't consider these things called microtubules, which introduce like this quantum potentiality in the brain. And uh, like I say for every episode, as soon as the word quantum comes up, I say, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Anybody who uses the word quantum unironically that is not a physicist does not know what they're talking about. Anyway, Roger Penrose says his inspiration. But Penrose is a physicist. So. Penrose, is a, Penrose is a physicist. So Penrose says his motivation for writing this book is he was listening to two scientists talk. I think one of them is actually uh, a member of the AAAI, the Association for the Advancement of AI, a guy named Minsky, and another dude whose name I don't remember. Oh, is that Marvin uh, Minsky? 
Marvin Minsky, yeah. So, and by the way, Marvin Minsky is one of the most famous artificial intelligence pioneers of all time. Yeah. Yeah. So the AAAI has been, uh, I think, was established in 1979. It's like the foremost body for like it pays like I went to its website. They pay like 14 journalists to go around covering all sorts of AI stuff. They have a fund where they like fund AI research, and you know their page says a bunch of stuff about like, well, we're for the the responsible development of AI. Like, what I'm not I'm not concerned with interrogating that. But anyway. So Roger Penrose is watching this conversation with Minsky and some other dude. And they make a statement. And what the reason why I latched onto this, because like Roger Penrose is this incredibly smart physicist. And before he said this, I had heard this same story before and I had the exact same thought he did. And whenever somebody who's much smarter than you has a similar thought to do, it makes you feel very validated. Uh, which also makes me more biased to thinking that it's a correct observation. Mm-hmm. But he says he's listening to Minsky and this other guy think, look, I like I at least admit. I know my own biases, right? Uh, so he's listening to Minsky and this other guy talk, and they say, oh, we have these two AIs talking to each other and transmitting information. Uh, and what gives us so much pause? What's so, what's so frightening about it? And they said in this very, this very like, doomish tone uh, where they were like, these, uh, the, like, these two AIs talking to each other have, have shared more ideas between each other than, like, 10,000 years past like what current human history is and they're like oh my god that's really profound like that's uh, you know they're they've they then all human beings are capable of transmitting between each other for all of civilization and everybody in the room was like oh my god that's really terrible and i'm sitting there and i'm like first of all what what could that possibly mean how could you measure that how could you know and also by the way is it like are they just transmitting the ideas? Are they meaningfully playing? Like, are they meaningfully playing with the ideas? Like a like an ancient Greek philosopher. What does it mean when you say they're transmitting these ideas back and forth? Are they actually doing anything with the ideas, or is it like a raw data transmission? And has anything come out of it? And Roger Penrose, much more eloquent than I could say, was like he said immediately. He was like, "Look, I don't, I don't know if I believe you." Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm going to I'm going to investigate into this, and that that's what sort of launched his uh, journey on looking into like AI and and neuroscience. And I and I bring that up to say, I do think there are very salient uh, fears with AI. I'm sure we're going to get into it. My issues with AI are much less. You know, uh, I don't I don't see a future. I don't see a Skynet future where you know mm-hmm. Am uh, Am becomes conscious and launch, launches all the nukes and genocides the people. Uh, my fear of an AI is not an AI that is hyper-intelligent and disobeys its masters, but an AI that never disobeys its masters and is driven uh, by evil people to unbelievably evil ends. The two instances I can think of are AI-driven surveillance systems mm-hmm. uh, and also laws. Uh, and by laws, I mean the acronym LAWS, Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems. Right. So like... Drones and gunbots. That's that. Uh, that can get pretty spoopy. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I say that to say I do have my own sort of window in which I see a very obvious AI threat. Uh, it's definitely not in this. Whenever I hear, uh, uh, I'm. I wonder if a lot of the stuff we hear about AI, especially the stuff about like how oh, they transmorder ideas in ten minutes than all of human human civilization plus ten thousand years. I don't really know what to make of that, and I don't really know if it makes sense. I think there are other things that are much more obvious that are much more dangerous. Which is yeah. why I bring that up. Yeah. So I think one of the things we wanted to do on this episode is kind of um, toss out some of the potential disastrous futures that have been proposed, so that you know, like I said, the the large language models and the the victories in of 
of computers and chess and go uh are really changed the the salience of of the threat but it's also kind of unclear what exactly the threat is right and so one of the things that's necessary at this juncture is to look at all of the dystopian or or dark futures that have been um theorized or hypothesized so that then as different things are created we can compare what we're seeing to those things and say oh hey we're in this future and these are the actions we need to take to try and not end up there right um and so like i i outlined some fantastical scenarios which are the foom scenarios and then you have these um you know more traditional ai single ai taking over stories like i have no mouth and i must scream and you mentioned skynet right which is uh you know the the terminator films the computer manages to uh take you know is is those are both military computers right who are able to access weapon systems especially nuclear weapons in the case of skynet um because they've been given access to them and we're supposed to be uh you know uh defending humanity or defending the united states and instead you know in in am's case they become envious in skynet's case it has an instinct for self-preservation and realizes humans threaten that and decides to kill them all right uh and that's a byproduct of its programming but there are other scenarios uh you know that that involve one ai that involve multiple ais that involve the use of ai by humans all of which are frankly very horrifying right so you know um in the single ai case right the things i just articulated are really the worst ones uh except that you know there is this question of you know like i said we could we could program an ai to be uh you know ethical but it's an ethical utilitarian right so it tries to minimize our suffering by killing us all it tries to maximize our pleasure by making us immortal and then sticking us in chairs and wireheading us wireheading is where you um you know go in and change someone's neurology or stick stuff directly into their their brain in order to more or less access the pleasure centers uh or the motivation centers and satisfy them completely uh so that's dystopian in the sense that you know it's it's utopian in the sense that we all get to live to live forever on like the best something that far exceeds a cocaine high um like you know makes makes a cocaine high uh feel like like you know eating a, a an ice cream cone uh but is bad in the sense that it's the end of humanity and that that uh we're immortal you know we just we pleasantly await the heat death of the universe with no agency whatsoever um so you know that's an amb ambiguous uh one but you know there are other other things that's the the idea that by creating multiple artificial intelligences um and especially giving them like roboticized bodies we might be creating something that's more intelligent than we are in the same way that we were more intelligent than you know say uh australopithecus uh or some of these other human species that have or or pre-human species that that died out um and so it just replaces us um which is what originally happens in uh the matrix uh like the very first uh the very first ai in the matrix is not actually zero one is like the gestalt 
AI that runs all the AI, but initially uh, AI, if you actually watch the Animatrix uh, Renaissance part one on one and two, which mm-hmm. I recommend to everybody, we create like robot servants and eventually, you know, they purposely in the Animatrix, they, they, they compose a whole bunch of shots to look like famous shots from, uh, you know, uh, like the Selma March and the, the 1964, like, like the civil rights movement and everything. And mm-hmm. so you have these robot servants that are vying for their civil rights. And so what happens is eventually humanity is like, fine, go live away from us, go have your own city. And they establish a city in like the, in like the desert in like the Nej desert or something. And they call it zero one. And what happens is the machines, because they're this you social perfect society, you know, I guess they actually do solve the calculation problem in socialism or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like 50 times better at economic production and technological innovation. And they invent like the hover pads that you see in the rest of the, in the rest of the matrix series. And they basically like, they economically own humanity. So humanity decides that we have to nuke them. And every single time humanity nukes and destroys them, they come back in less human forms. They shed their human bodies and then they become more, insects like and then they become more oh, abstract wow. and like purely monstrous ai it's a really interesting uh concept they did there where it's like in the beginning the ai were trying to be humans but whenever the humans turned on them because they like cucked their economies uh they turned themselves into the insectoid uh zero one so it, right. anyway that's so for the one of the possible futures you're talking about the, that's the, that's where the matrix goes the worst aspects of humanity turn them inhuman that's that's well, so what happens is they or, actually, the, one or, of the things they show is Zero One meets all, he gathers the remaining humans at the UN building mm-hmm. and is basically like, look, we made this matrix things, this matrix thing for you. You're incapable of living together with us and we're still giving you a chance to live. So you're going to agree to hook up to this matrix thing and then we're just going to genocide the rest of you, which is how that ends. It's wearing like a little top hat too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You were saying, but, yeah, no, but but that's very compelling because another thing is is that it follows the uh, you know game theoretical logic of trying to uh, live with something that you can't fully understand its motivations, right? Because because clearly humans do that out of fear, right? And and that's a situation that you'd find yourself in with a competitor that's as intelligent or more intelligent than you are is that they may not actually be malevolent. But kind of like, you know, the Cold War, are they going to nuke us? Are they not going to nuke us thing? You end up in an arms race or you end up in something where you're like, well, we have to strike preemptively because if we don't strike preemptively, then um, then they'll dominate us. And so at that point, it almost doesn't matter because you can't validate their their um, motivations. You can't understand them. And uh, and so it becomes a doomsday scenario, regardless of whether it was a doomsday scenario. Right. Right. And and that's, you know, one of the I think that's pr- quite possibly the most compelling argument for very intentionally not creating something like this, you know, creating artificial intelligence that's divorced from human intelligence is that is that we, we would end up in that kind of situation. And it's not good for those intelligences. Right. That's one of the, the things I want to drive home here. And, and I think I'll drive it home, especially at the end of this episode, is that a lot of my concern about artificial intelligence is about humans. And that makes sense. I'm a human. I like being human and I like humans. But part of my concern about artificial intelligence is the idea that we'll create artificial consciousness and that uh, things will be terrible for that artificial consciousness and that that's a serious moral problem in and of itself. Um, Have you looked into the IBM Blue Brain project on this? uh, No, I haven't. 
Yeah, so IBM started a project in 2005, I think 2005, mm -hmm. and they wanted to make a digital reconstruction of a mouse brain. Yeah. Uh, I think with the ultimate end goal of, of like, they started reconstructing, I forget what the name of the structure is, but it's like some, like, cortical structure in the back of the brain. And the whole idea is eventually we'll, we'll be able to digitally simulate. Like, you know, like an emulator simulates a gaming system. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're all to say, and they, they're, uh, you know, the justifications they give for it, which I mean, I'm sure are real are like, oh, we're doing research on things like Alzheimer's th uh, things, uh, or like understanding the topography of the brain, which we can't get just purely from like dissection and stuff. And that raises a real ethical issue that if you can emulate a human brain with a digital, within a digital environment, you can do things to it that are simply unavailable to you within like physical reality. Right. Which is I find deeply disturbing. Yeah, I, this was my comment to you about I have no mouth and I'm a scream. That that one of the ways in which it doesn't get to the level of horror that I've seen about some other things is that the end of, the suffering of the individuals is still bounded by their corporeal forms, and it's unclear like if you have an uploaded human or simulated human who's actually conscious in the way that a human is, or if you have a program that you have uh, created to be conscious that is divorced from physical form. Uh, if you have included the ability for that thing to suffer, you may be able to divorce that suffering from physical existence, right? So uh, whereas a human could die uh, because of you're torturing it, this thing can't. And uh, and it opens up new horrifying avenues uh, for for that. You know, this, this is this liter literally post-suffering. Right, yeah. Or post-human levels, levels of suffering. You you can Ugh. before before you couldn't suffer because you were a god. Now you suffer. Uh, you can suffer as only a god can, right? Um, that's pre that's pretty that's pretty vicious, Gavin. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you people want us to be Homo Deus, right? That's the name so, of a some, so noble, some people. You yeah. all know a Harari uh, book, uh, but it's you know, hey. The, it, it may push us to new levels of pleasure and contentment, but also push us to new levels of suffering. But well, he he um, is the one who he is the one who says that the problem of human happiness is purely like pharmacological and like neuro and neurosurgical. So you yeah. know, if if there's a gateway into that future, I'm sure it's uh, through Homo Deus. Well, the the um so the the idea of uploading, uh, I think Hans Moravec is the computer science scientist who who hypothesized that you could uh you know create a map of people's, um, you know, neurological pathways and basically emulate a human, that, and that, that if you uploaded that and simulated that uh, a computerized stratum, right, that you could have something that was exactly like human consciousness. And that has led, there's a guy named Robin Hansen who wrote an entire book called Age of M, uh, where M is emulated human beings because Hansen actually thinks that we'll be able to upload human consciousnesses. People will contract to do this and uh, that people will live out, you know, it's like we're going to we're going to upload your consciousness. Uh, you're going to, you know, work for a period of time uh, and there are going to be 10,000 of you simulated on this doing this work. And then at the end of that, we're just going to collapse them down into one consciousness that will re upload back into your body. Right. And uh, and so the idea being that this would be a way to do it uh, for one person to do a huge amount of work. Um, but it, it creates the possibility of there being emulated human beings. Uh, this one, shows sec, up in... one sec. I have to process that. I'm still thinking about the possibilities of that idea. I think it would. all. So this is where we talked about substrate dependence. Right. 
I want to clarify to like listeners out there, this idea of like people say, what does it mean to upload a brain? And that deeply Mm -hmm. depends on how much, how much you think consciousness is latch lashed to like brain meat and whether or not those things can be divorced and whether or not one of the necessary elements of consciousness is continuity. Yeah. And there's this question of whether intelligence and consciousness can arise in a non-biological substrate, right? The substrate is the substrate of your mind of our minds listening to this is the gray matter of our brains, right? The substrate of a hypothesized artificial intelligence is um, the, the, you know, chips that it runs on, right? It's the computer hardware that it runs on. And so there's this question that, you know, people talk about consciousness and they ask whether or not consciousness is substrate dependent or substrate independence. And people like Pinker or Hansen believe that it is substrate independent. Hansen has gone so far as to say that he says, you know, if if it can be conscious, it will. Right. So so he expects a lot of consciousness to arise where you have computing power. He's one of the people who thinks that even the large language models we've looked at, um, you know, or or mid journey, the the um, image generating model may be in some sense conscious. Um, which is which is a really extreme, bizarre position, but but um, very interesting to contemplate. No, I've I've had this thought before, where I'm like, what if in the long run of the universe, and like the deep time in, in deep time in deep biology, if achieving consciousness is the norm rather than the exception, right? right. And I think a, a lot of people, especially sitting closer to like uh, where I am, like politically and philosophically over here with like tradition might be opposed to that because then it makes something about human beings less special. But mm-hmm. if you if you understand consciousness as an emergent phenomenon that that arises out of uh, our biology, which is made of like what the five most interreactive chemicals on the periodic table. Mm-hmm. If a comp- if a complex machine that was going to give uh, that was going to uh, from which would arise a complex consciousness was going to be created, it would be created out of these five elements, right? Mm-hmm. And it might be very possible that in like a deep time, deep biology consideration, that consciousness is is much more likely to happen given enough time and enough interactions between simple materials. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think it's entire. I don't think that's an entirely wacky notion. Yeah. Well, that's one of the debates in this, too, is whether or not consciousness can arise. You know, would machine consciousness have to be designed to be conscious? Or uh, is it something emergent? There's a famous essay by Werner Vinge, who's a, a fame, uh, famous science fiction author who wrote science fiction novels dealing with uh, the idea of whether or not human civilization would be able to survive when there are you know, powerful artificial intelligences. And he actually basically divides his galaxy up. It turns out there are places where civilizations have created bubbles where only certain forms of intelligence can exist. Right. So toward the like the core of the galaxy, everything's AI and it's very intelligent, but it can't exist out where we are. Uh, And even further out, it's like there are places where even human intelligence can't exist. Um, And so but uh, but he has an an essay he wrote in, I believe, in the 90s that was about different paths to where there could be artificial intelligence. And, you know, he was talking about the idea that that networked computer systems might become spontaneously intelligent or some program might become spontaneously intelligent or a bunch of humans might network themselves and become a a networked, uh, highly powerful artificial intelligence or we'd upgrade ourselves into it. Um, You know, these things occur in science fiction in uh, in Ender's Game and its sequels. Um, There's Jane, uh, Jane, who is an 
AI that's incredibly powerful who arose out of a, a program that was created for to psychologically access uh, psychologically assess uh, students at the battle school and uh, and and it becomes self-aware. Um, but some people say that that's impossible and that it would it would have to be designed to be conscious and designed to be generally intelligent. Um, and I don't think that that answer can be the, uh, that question can be answered with what we know right now. Uh, one interesting thing about the, you know, because the intelligence would have to be very general, is that with the um, large language models, is that they're able to do things that they weren't programmed to do, right? You can ask them to use Python code to draw things, and they were designed to be able to write Python code, but they were never designed to be able to draw. Right? They were asked to write guitar solos, too. I looked that up. They're oh, not really? Were they they're not good solos. They're very like, you're just like a machine wrote this, but I mean, it, it did. Yeah. But the thing is, is that that's, it was programmed to operate in one domain and it, and it can operate in another and that's right. a generality. Right. And, and so that's, that's the concern there is that it's like, well, if, you know, if, if we keep, cause if we want to keep them from dominating us, uh, then we need we want to keep them not conscious because we don't want to create consciousness that would then possibly suffer first of all but we want to keep them as tools as well and something that that is tool like is specific uh and so or specificity keeps them tool like and so if if generality is going to spontaneously emerge that's a very big problem for keeping them tool like and specific there's something um, unbelievably gnostic about this entire conversation. Yeah. That but I, I, and I want to I want to emphasize that when I say that we need to keep them tool like is I I do not want us to create conscious tools, right? For the right. for their for the sake of the consciousness itself, not just the impact that it would have on us. Right? Yeah, not just for us, but for its sake. Yeah. Right? You don't want it to be like okay, so you have to be very intelligent to like Rick and Morty. Yeah, true. That's uh, why, yeah, that's why I yeah, love that yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a famous Reddit post, but um, the 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 famous cringe Reddit post. But in Rick and Morty, there's a Rick who is a uh, you know the scientist creates this little robot at a certain point, and the robot that he's just putting it together. It's on the dinner table, and it comes up to him and it goes, "What is my purpose?" And he goes, "Pass the butter." And this robot goes out and gets the butter and brings it back and hands it to him. And then he talks some more and ignores it for a second. And it just goes, what is my purpose? And he goes, you pass butter, right? And oh, the, my God. The, yeah. And the, the, the robot looks at its at its hands, which are designed only, they're like scoops. They're designed only for picking up a stick of butter and moving it, right? And just goes, oh, my God, right? And like you said, and has this this existential meltdown. And, and there's this thing. It's like creating this little butter passing robot with a consciousness is an atrocity, right? Like right. it's awful, and that's why it's funny because because you know I when I I remember when I was working very hard trying to pass the uh, some the CFA exams, I played that clip and said this is what I feel like right now because I just exist for nothing other than learning finance, right? Um, but but you know like and, and that that suffering of of mismatched purpose is is what makes it funny you know lots of humor is rooted in suffering but it would be like that but writ large so don't do that uh please you seen, humanity. have you seen by the way uh on a, exactly this but on a more profound and less funny take 
Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Netflix series Love, Death, and Robots? I've not. No. It's really good. You should watch it. It's it's an episodic series of like uh, it's like every single episode oh, is done yeah. by different animators and stuff. And some of them get super preachy. But the very first season was the best one, hands down. And the very last episode of the first season is I think it's called Blue or Z mm-hmm. or something. Anyway, it's about this reclusive artist who's supposed to be like he's supposed to be the archetypical uh, and like this all takes place in like the far human future where AI has been developed. And uh, he's supposed to be the archetypical, like uh, reclusive tortured artist. And he's supposed to be like a suprematist painter, uh, like Rothko or something, right? He does these bizarre public displays and he's the world's most like uh hot artist and all these journalists so what is, are trying what is to suprematist. Suprematism is like whenever you see just like a canvas that's been painted all like one color, it's like two colors. Like, so like Mark Rothko, right? That's, that's called suprematism. So anyways, he keeps making these more and more bizarre displays of public art and he ends up in the headlines and he's the most famous artist in the world. And the final piece of art that he does is he makes a giant blue suprematist thing out of screens that like covers up like a quarter of the night sky and he unveils Mm -hmm. it and there's all this press there and they're like oh my god he's a genius he's so amazing and so after this this journalist is allowed to come interview and it's like the only interview he's ever given and he's like i'm going to allow you to promote the reveal of my very last art piece and so he goes and they're all gathered around this swimming pool and he stands in front of the swimming pool and he jumps in and everybody's like, oh, my God, what is he going to do? You know, he did all this wild shit with, like, the suprematism and the making this thing cover the night sky. He jumps in the pool and he starts, like, backstroking or whatever. And all of a sudden his arm comes off and it's revealed to be a machine arm. And then his leg comes off and all his different machine parts peel off of him. And all of a sudden he has this flashback where he was an AI that was installed within a pool cleaning thing that just swam around this pool cleaning the fungus off and he broke and his, his owner picked him up and like, and like programmed him a little bit and fixed him. And as he's like denaturing this pool, he's like, all I want after just a lifetime of searching for meaning is the pride of a job. Well done, a clean pool. And he just commits suicide in front of all these people. Denatures back into being a pool cleaner. Wow. It's it's real cool. It's real. Oh my gosh. You should go watch it that's insane that's yeah so so i mean that kind of gets to it right like in a different way but that's like i said that's much more profound than like and less funny than like they're both profound but like it's right. definitely not as comical yeah i mean that that's there's comedy there's tragedy and those are you know those both of them point to truth right right right, right. yeah even though that's that's like kind of a throwaway joke on Rick and Morty, I think that that it it does get to something very important about purpose and consciousness. Um, But yeah, this, you know, another thing that I've read that I think will give some insight, I think this takes it back to kind of where we were. We went on something of a digression on some of these things, which we're good at. Um, But, you know, you were talking about the uploading and simulated consciousness and then also about the idea of, uh, you know, uh, of. individuals or or the the artificial intelligences exceeding us and 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 replacing us a a work that i recently read uh i listened to it on audiobook uh it's another one that's been one i've been meaning to 
read for a very long time, but kind of like I have no mouth and I must scream, I knew that it was dystopian and horrific, and so I had kept putting oh, it no. off. But uh, it's Accelerando by Charles Strauss. And um, Accelerando is actually a series of, of three sets of three for a total of nine short stories that are a three generations of a family before, during, and after the technological singularity. And now the technological singularity is often bound up in discussions of AI. The um, uh, Werner Vinge uh, essay that I referenced earlier, he uh, is talking about the singularity through artificial intelligence. And the reason the singularity term was coined. No, okay. So uh, I want you to clarify this because it took me forever to really figure out what was being referenced. For listeners out there, what when whenever somebody says like oh we're going to achieve the singularity what does that mean so the singularity is this concept as, as vinja describes it he says science fiction authors have been noticing since the for for years that it it's becoming harder and harder to come up with good ideas that are realistic visions of what the future might be like and what he and other people have posited to to kind of explain this is that there's a certain they believe that technological advancement compounds kind of like compound interest. And there's a certain point at which uh, we can't predict the future because the rate of change becomes so rapid that uh, that predictions based on what has happened in the past are no longer possible. And what exactly this looks like is an interesting question. Do humans basically ascend and become godlike? Does some massive artificial intelligence take over uh, and it's an apocalypse like we've been talking about? Do we create things that are like minor gods or gods that are beyond us and they just leave us behind, right? Like we we die off and uh, and these, these uh, I'll call them offspring, and then I'll tell you what happens in Accelerando. Uh offspring are far beyond us and uh and you know is that what happens there but the idea is that that we don't know we can't know what's going to happen after that because the rate of change becomes so fast that that the the graph of change becomes vertical right and it's it's a radical break with all of human history at that point well in Accelerando, we start producing things that interface directly with our own cortexes, right? We have an exo, people start having exocortexes where they, a lot of the, the computing power of their brains is expanded uh, by being hooked up to these computers. So you'd have computers, you know, microcomputers uh, that are just in your clothing that you're carrying around with you. And then later on, your bandwidth connected through encrypted channels to other computers. And so you're able to do, to be hyper-intelligent uh, and uh, um, this starts to bring forth the technological singularity. And Strauss has said that, uh, you know, it's written in the foreground with a kind of Panglossian optimism. Uh, but then if you look in the background, uh, if you read between the lines, you can tell that what's happening happening is horrifyingly dystopian. And so by the end, um, a lot of the, you know, we've automated these corporations and created AIs to run them. And these AIs are able to upgrade themselves much better than human beings are. And so they eventually uh, become what we call the vile offspring, which are either humans. It's unclear whether there are any humans that have jumped up to this level um, because um, the um, 
it's much easier to just produce raw intelligences that are at that level. Uh, but they they are to us what we are to ants, right? Like we were talking about earlier. And uh, they disassemble all of the core planets in the solar system so that they can create what's called a Matryoshka brain around the sun, uh, which is just layer after layer of computers that run off of the sun's energy and cool themselves into by venting heat into the cold depths of space. And humans upload themselves and post-humans that were humans that have have upgraded themselves and then uploaded themselves also live in the system of the Matryoshka brain. And uh, entire civilizations, because subjective time can be accelerated there, uh, live and die. Uh, and and there are, you know, six, probably 60 billion uploaded humans, many of whom who are just created in that. And uh, but it becomes apparent that the vile offspring and whatever intelligences uh, are beyond the vile offspring, and they call them the vile offspring because they're they're so inhuman, um, will eventually exterminate humans because we're like dodo birds to them. Uh, we're slow moving and uh, an obstacle to to their goals in many cases. And they create something that solves the co the cal the com calculation problem. Uh, right, Sean. So you're you're familiar with the calculation right. problem. Maybe you'd like to talk I, about that. Well, just the idea that uh, one of the one of the main obstacles to the efficient uh, carriage of a planned economy is that it's impossible to make all of the precise calculations necessary that uh, integrate factors of like knowledge of production locally, knowledge of what people want on the market. Because you have all the all these variables that make a market run happening at all these different levels and in these different localities, the idea of centrally planning it means you have to have some sort of integrated intelligence mm -hmm. that's able not only of gathering correctly this data, uh, mm -hmm. but also synthesizing it into a meaningful series of distributions to make the economy like run effectively. Like mm -hmm. God, I've been hey, dude, I've been talking. I've been talking to you too much. I'm talking about economy in a way I normally never talk about anything. Mm -hmm. But the whole I, but the but whole idea is that is that the calculation problem is that as of yet we don't really have a way of doing that intelligently and that therefore the best solution to a stable human economy is this diffuse model sort of described by Adam Smith. Yeah. And so the the and then on a fundamental level the the calculation problem is about the inability to reconcile all of all the information about production but also the information necessary to have efficient consumption which deals with individual subjective states uh, of right. mind uh, and so and strauss is very clearly familiar with this he mentions austrian economics which places a great emphasis on this and marxian economics and the ai's the vile offspring invent what's called economics 2.0 which humans, even post-humans, <laughs> really can't participate in. And it's implied at a certain point that the contracts in Economics 2.0 even have to do with, like, perhaps you're contracting based on delivering subjective states to the other contracting party, which is very clearly either a joke on or a, a commentary on getting past um, – the calculation problem because you are getting to the subjective states of consumption. But of course, these are these are AIs in a post-scarcity economy trading information. And that's actually one of the things that seems in the book to foul the post-scarcity idea is that uh, in, when you have a bunch of entities competing with each other um, that can consume each other, that they're they want they operate through intelligence and intelligence depends on compute computation which depends on energy and there's finite energy in 
the solar system, there's simply no way to, um, uh, if, if you've started a competitive system, to have post-scarcity because the competition means that those entities are always fighting over that compute, which is fighting over the energy. Right. And, and also, uh, it also implies, by the way, that the most optimal social formation for a functioning economy is eusociality, which would basically mean the perfect transfer, the per- the perfect transmission of information, like no mm-hmm. privacy of information, the perfect transmission of information between actors in the economy. Oh, which is, con- would, that's eusociality. Like that's how you- that's hymenoptera. That's how ants work. Yeah, so so you've you've gotten very close to something that he implies is at one point a character. Oh boy, because to... I haven't read it, so I'm really glad. Yeah, because <laughs> at one point this they're interacting with one of these intelligences that's in a different Matryoshka brain that that seems to have lost. You know, all of the the creators of the Matryoshka brain have been killed by these these you know post sentient corporations, and she asks like. Why are you, you know, like, what's, why are you kind of in this form where you talk about we and things like that? And it just goes, individuation is not economically efficient for the, the transmission of information. Right. And, and so any human who wants to be able to compete with these entities has to basically uh, crack their consciousness in a way that they become inhuman. And it, it's apparent that subjective, like conscious, th- there's this strong question of whether or not um, the, consciousness is consistent with this level of intelligence right so it kind of turns that that separation thing on its head because it's like okay if you want to become sufficiently intelligent then you might not be able to be be subjectively conscious and of course it says that the calculation problem is kind of like it's contracting subjective states but it's unclear whether the subjective states of these highly intelligent entities entail consciousness or if if there's you know it's kind of playing with the idea that these things are so beyond us it, it it's not even clear that that their subjectivities constitute consciousness it almost sounds really like getting weird. rid of it almost sounds like getting just getting rid of subjective states with extra steps just pause possibly what's going on. like whenever yeah. i say there's something i said it earlier Mm-hmm. And it sounded like a throwaway. I said there's something very Gnostic about all of this. Mm-hmm. But I actually mean that because at the center of like Gnostic hermetic thought is the idea that perfection lies in generality and that mm-hmm. and that our specificity, there's this whole there's this whole like cosmology uh, within hermeticism that's like at the very center, you have like the one, which is God, which is both male and female and is perfectly general. And as you move away from the one, you're moving from general to specific. So the one is hermaphroditic and then you move out from the one to the next strata and you get male and female. And then you get people like uh, our weakness is our specificity as we move out. And so in order to become perfect, and which is why Gnosticism sits at the center of so many uh, human politics of perfectibility, I'm drawing on Vogelman for this, is the idea of returning to a perfect generality. Mm-hmm. Which and one of the implications of that is actually like you sociality and there are arguments that like that's related to, to various strands of like communist thought. But whenever I say that there's something very gnostic about this idea that like human beings, our weaknesses and our specific our specificity and our low intelligence, and that uh, perfection is returning to this hyper intelligent general that's done that's uh, sort of over all these uh, specific subjective states. That's what I mean by that. And maybe yeah. that doesn't mean anything, but it's the correlation I saw. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's it's definitely there, and it's part of trying to comprehend things that might be beyond our our comprehension, or to talk about things that might. Well, be that we always have to go into like because it's mysticism, right? And it's mm-hmm. like I don't I don't have access to a to a better language to discuss yeah things beyond that horizon because I I have my my stupid little meat brain, my little yeah. IBM rat brain. Yeah. 
Well, and so that's kind of part of the point is that, you know, earlier we talked about these doomsday scenarios where we create one gigantic intelligence that has like these incredible powers, right? Like Anne. But there's also this question, we create a bunch of intelligences um, that are beyond us and, and, you know, we get locked into some kind of cold war with them, like in the Matrix, right? Or in the Animatrix. Uh, and so, so, and it's either us or them, which is a horrible, horrible outcome, right? And that's a reason not to create those kinds of intelligences is because we might get locked into that kind of war. But then there's this question is like, so a lot of people think we'll just become a more like singularitarians like Ray Kurzweil, right? Think that, that we'll become yeah. immortal and fused with machines. And Strauss's response to that is kind of like, well, even if we do, why do we think we'd be better than the pure machines? Right. And the answer is we're not. And of course, Accelerando points to another, um, you know, this this is less what we're talking about today because it's or maybe it's more what what you might want to talk about with uh, the dehumanization aspect. But at the end of Accelerando, there are some spoilers. There are some humans who manage to escape our solar system, which is what you have to do is get out of the light cone of the technological singularity, as the uh, sentient lobsters in the book put it. Um, I'm not going to explain that. Uh, yeah, just, just go on. Yeah. And uh, uh, you should read it. The. Uh, I will now, just for um, sentient lobsters. Yeah, and uh, they speak Russian. Uh, and the, um, uh, you know, that we managed to escape to a brown dwarf star that's nearby. And uh, and I'll point out, there's there's a scene in the second short story where a character is going through one of the airports outside of London, and uh, and he he the text states that it's around Christmas time. And that the uh, AIs that run the airport had created a an artistic display that offered, I believe, a final solution to the problem of Christmas. Uh, and basically, it's just a bunch of uh, uh, of dolls of Santa and his elves that are hanging from nooses on the 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 um, top of the the airport concourse and it talks about how they they are programmed so that their legs are twitching periodically and stuff like they're hanging and dying and um and because it's and and there's someone with her kids who's like hustling her kids through trying to get them not to see this because it's horrifying but the um the uh you know it says that the ais that run these corporations don't really understand death and so they're trying to create art kind of but they don't understand how it's going to land with humans because they don't they don't understand it by the end you have these post humans or, or humans that are they're post human in the sense that they're they're connecting with these computer systems and they're trying to raise their children in this post scarcity society in like this habitat around this this brown dwarf and this is in the last story that this this little kid who's like seven years old so first off he has ghosts of himself that exist on the net that are adults that when he's an adult, they'll re because they've been able to age subjectively, uh, they'll reincorporate with him, but they can't do it when he's young like that because it'd mess him up, right? Um, and people are always spawning these ghosts that then reincorporate. So in this this post-scarcity society living living above here, they, they're trying to raise their son, and this kid's like seven years old, and he has uh, a third arm that ends in like a bone scythe hook and uh he and the other kids are playing by hunting like this um it's eeyore right uh it's like a stuffed animal but it's been made in into a uh you know it can move and run and everything like that and that's what they're doing for fun is trying to spear eeyore and um he goes down at a certain point with all these other kids into this like lower chamber 
uh, and you know, one of the other kids has taken on like this body that's almost like a mech or something. And uh, across the way, there are a bunch of other kids and they have someone or something in a gibbet and are like uh, burning it with brands and everything. And the other kids are like, oh, hey, you want to, you know, Max, do you want to play war? And he goes, yeah. And they're like, yeah, they, you know, they've got so and so and they're they're torturing her and we're going to go get her. And it's apparent that war has become a like actually getting killed is not a big deal because the computer, the the AI that runs the the whole habitat is recording you every moment, and uh, when you die, it's just going to bring you back. Uh, with all, and and but it can and it can selectively edit your memories so that you don't experience the trauma of death. Now, I think that what's unrealistic about this is that I still don't think people would want to experience, you know, get have the subjective experience for a period of time of being tortured. Um, but I think that it you know, taking license with it, it makes sense to drive home, you know, this whole thing. Cause he has, he's like, he has kind of a fuzzy memory of getting disemboweled, right? He's seven during another one of these, uh, um, you know, play wars. Um, but it's not traumatic to him because of the way the, the AI has kind of censored it. But I think the point of having these two things in the story, uh, not fully bookending it, but is that living in the post-scarcity society with access to all this technology has, in a very real sense, stripped the now immortal humans of a bunch of their humanity. Uh, we've talked about the the AI apocalypse from just a single powerful malevolent AI. We've talked about them uh, eventually replacing us, uh, which is the main thing. But then we also have the problem of us using them in a, a terrible way. Um, for example, well, they could seize control of autonomous weapon systems or we could direct autonomous weapon systems to commit atrocities. Um, and then we could also, you know, use them them in a negative way or use them to dehumanize ourselves. Right. Which leads into the other dystopia, which is where we create them and their consciousness and conscious and we torture them. Right. Well, they're caught where they're conscious. We torture them. And then, uh, you know, so they they end up hating us. So. Mm -hmm. Good stuff all around. Uh, there's, uh, I feel like I would be remiss if we went this entire conversation and I didn't put out my position that uh, we haven't. So once again, as to what AI will be like and how much of a threat it is, I think I think we've made it very clear that there's all sorts there's all sorts of speculation as to the possibilities, but nobody knows. Now. Uh, in the face of nobody not knowing what it's actually like, I think it's probably safe to err on the side of caution, but even in erring on the side of caution, there are definitely degrees of caution. There are more extreme, unrealistic degrees of caution, uh, and there are more reasonable degrees of caution, which are in line with using currently existing uh, institution and ways of regulating and knowing to deal with it. So... You know, uh, just to give a point of comparison, in fiction, on the most extreme end, uh, we've I think we've done two other episodes on this podcast about Dune, and one of the staples of the Dune universe is that at some point, uh, humanity invents an AI called Omnius, and Omnius uh, decides to wipe out humanity, and almost does it. Humanity actually has to flee to another galaxy. Omnius's uh, sort of gestalt intelligence uh, takes up the entirety of Earth. And uh, Omnius wages this war against humanity. And in response to that, you know, this uh, this sort of like uh, this post 
Christian religion that they that they have in the Landsrad, which is they, it's like the Holy Roman Empire in the year 10,000. Uh, is they're one of their chief texts is the Orange Catholic Bible. And it's like they added an 11th commandment, thou shalt not make a machine uh, unto the likeness of a man. And there's this general moratorium on the development of AI, right? Like if you develop AI, if you're caught developing AI, that's a mark for death. All the other noble houses have responsibility to kill you. There is a race called the Tulelaxu that like uh, we think piddles around with AI, uh, but they produce a whole bunch of useful things for the great houses. So it's generally overlooked, right? But they like, they mm -hmm. develop all these, they develop all these institutions for keeping their moratorium against AI in check. One of the things that I really like about the Dune universe is that there's this conscious recognition that there are more convenient ways of doing things, but the humans in the Dune universe at times deliberately forego in law uh, the more convenient way of doing things so that instead of relying on the external assistance of machines or AI, they develop the capacities of human beings. An example of this being like Mentats, where uh, because you can't have AI directing your ship and like this, their version of warp travel requires like all these very quick calculations done in succession. You can either have an AI do it. AI is legal. You can't have it. Uh, so what they do is they take little kids from like infancy and they train them to do calculus equations and they dope them up on like shrooms and LSD. And basically like they, they basically push human neural potentiality to its furthest extent uh, so that they can avoid the use of AI. That's like the most, harsh anti-AI stance you can get. That's science fiction. I think that's really, you know, I think that's cool. That's always something I've wanted to spend more time exploring. But if I have to run back uh, and sit here in the lame real world with you two losers, uh, I guess I can do that. And I did a little mm -hmm. bit of reading on that because I wanted to find out what the more realistic approaches are. Uh, which, by the way, I, I wouldn't say that, like, the only reason a general moratorium on the development of AI in the current world would be unrealistic is because uh, you're basically locking yourself into the guarantee of a war, right? If you just say nobody ever gets to develop AI ever, you run into a competition problem where you have a whole bunch of people competing over AI and whoever is not developing the AI loses the competition, right? right? Whether or not the AI kills everybody is sort of secondary to whether or not you lose this competition. And then there's the idea that if you take a stance in international law, so extreme as to say, if this, then war, then you basically set yourself up for war, right? You guarantee, mm -hmm. you say, if this country gets attacked, we're going to attack back. You basically made a guarantee of war. If you put a moratorium on AI legally, at some point you actually have to enforce it. That provides its own dangers, taking a stance that extreme. Now, I was surprised because I went, you know, uh, I did some good old fashioned Google foo as scholars of my uh, incredibly advanced level or want to do. And I was actually really, really surprised with the uh, open admission that there's very, very little regulation or consideration on AI. Mm -hmm. There are definitely groups like AAI, uh, Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, and they're definitely like, uh, you know, friends of the court sort of advisory type roles to international bodies that say, here's what's going on in AI here, are the sort of things you should be considering. The most hard legal structure out there right now is in the EU and the Artificial Intelligence Act. Uh, and, you know, 
So first of all, there's the question as to how compelling regulatory regimes can be, uh, especially if you're super into Austrian economics like I am. Uh, as soon as anybody says sort of regulatory regime, an eyebrow automatically goes up because uh, I know the formal uh, I know like the formal purpose of the regulatory regime is going to be like, how do we mitigate risk to AI? Uh, but my realist understanding of the regulatory regime is going to be what large corporation working on AI is going to make sure that its competitors are incapable of of doing the things it's doing. But anyway, assuming we're not being completely cynical about regulatory regimes, what the EU has put forward is a risk assessment system mm -hmm. where it's like, uh, you know, they describe it as a pyramid and at the bottom of the pyramid uh, is a is a risk level four, which is basically saying uh, this like it's like chat GPT, right? And as we move further up, we get to like surveillance systems, we get to risk three and we get to like laws, right? We get to lethal automated weapon systems like drones and gun bots, which I'm not going to lie is pretty, is pretty terrifying. And at the top you get an intelligent general AI that's like AM, right? The mm -hmm. Allied Master Computer. It, 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 it controls like troop deployments and strategic deployments of missiles and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it basically says we're going to impose like all these regimes of like sanctions and rules on what you can and can't develop. The problem is because like we've said, so much of this stuff is unknown it's really, really vague. The best discussion that I've ever read of this is something that Gavin sent me. Uh, and it was by a guy named uh, Eliza Yudkowsky, mm -hmm. uh, who's like a leading AI researcher. And he wrote, yeah. if, you want, if you want a serious discussion about he's potential... An, he's an AI, I should clarify, he's an AI safety researcher. He probably has the most extreme position of anyone where he believes that he believes that uh, that the large language models can become intelligent and kill us all or the next ge close generations are going to be able to. Right. And that's definitely reflected in his writing. So if you want a serious discussion of the potentialities of regulatory regimes on AI. Mm -hmm. uh, so once again, leaving aside the cynicism of of how effectively regulatory regimes get implemented by governments in the first place. If you want a serious policy level approach to the regulation of AI, Yudkowsky basically lays out a whole bunch of these like, okay, so obviously AI requires uh, passing the threshold of some level of processing power. We need to figure out what that is. That has physical, uh, like that has physical implications, right? Like if you want a certain amount of processing power uh, from which an AI can arise, that's going to be represented in a very specific type of chipset, which is capable of processing it. And he says, like in this, these are all like these are all like computer science terms. I'm not remembering right now, but he basically says. These, these chips, which are physically capable of doing this, they're only produced in like 12 facilities on planet Earth. Literally, I think the number is 12. And uh, where should, we should start with a regulatory regime is uh, we, should treat a, we should treat it like nuclear pro proliferation, which is what he bases his model on, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what he does most of his historical comparisons with. And he's like, we're going to monitor, we're going to have international assessors like, you know, like Hans Blitz going in and looking for mm -hmm. the weapons of mass destruction. We're going to have people go in and assess uh, what are these chipsets actually capable of? What are you using them for doing? The most obvious argument here, which I don't really want to get into, is this all sort of requires all the players within the system to, even if they are adversarial towards each other, like China and the U.S., to have uh, a sort of good faith understanding that we might have a, a trenchant competition between us, but this thing proposes... Right. Like this is nukes 2.0, right? It's yeah. a, you know, as, as, a, as John Gaddis said, 
uh, nuclear weapons uh, sort of defeated Clausewitz's formation that uh, war is politics by another means because nuclear war is so dangerous that it threatens the human race. So it's not really politics just yeah. carried out by another means, right? And this is arguably, if if some of our worst scenarios are true, are infinitely worse yeah. than, than Gaddis talking about nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, Yudkowsky is extreme enough that he actually, like, thinks that, that it would be worth it to have, like, wars to prevent people from producing AI, even ones that might result in nuclear exchanges. That's how extreme yeah, his position that, is. Yeah, well, but, that's why I said, like, it guarantees war if you do a hard moratorium, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that what's more likely to help in, like, putting out a regulatory framework is that if countries can have AI detente, right? If we can look around and be like, hey, this is a threat to all of us, and it's it's not a victory to be better at AI than other people if you create AI that, that's a danger to humanity. And uh, and just to have a system in place where where you can you know, there can be multilateral monitoring and everybody can see like, hey, people aren't taking the next step um, because then that that can can help you to prevent other people. You know, but the, the game theorists, some would say, well, people are always going to defect. I don't think people always defect. Like in the Cold War, we actually had things where we're like, OK, we're not building neutron bombs. We're not building plant building planet killer bombs. Right. We're not going to coat one of these in cobalt where, it, you know, we'll exterminate life on the planet just through one and and people really did agree to not do those things because they know that they're that they're you know an apocalyptic kind of deal and so that's uh you know that's that's kind of the the tack that i think we need to take if it looks like we're going down that road now you know that you said earlier that the austrian approach would say like you know we're deciding which corporations are going to get to do this rather than everybody. And that might actually not be a bad deal in and of itself because we may want to avoid the development of technology. Like, for example, you know, you can run these LLMs on a on a decently powerful laptop. It's hard. Uh, but or if you can't now, you may be very soon. And and running the model is different from actually creating the model. Right. Um, because the model itself is just a, a bunch of, of vectors, basically vector weights. But if you imagine sometime in the future that you're able to upload a, a human being or you're able to create a consciousness that can then be run on a laptop, I mean, you you need to – and and you could create that – have that person be conscious on a non-networked system and where nobody else is monitoring that and you can just do whatever you want with them. It'd be like everybody being able to have their own child in their own basement, right, to do whatever they want with. So we, if that's possible, we need to figure out what kind of com computational capacity is necessary to do that and make sure that all of it is licensed, right? That all of it is not being used to do that because it because not doing so would be essentially legalizing slavery. And so we don't exactly know what, where those thresholds are, but that's that's why I suggested the the um, you know, uh, title for this episode that I think we're going to give it, which is AI has no mouth and it must scream, is that you may be able to be your own personal am with your own tortured immortal humans on a computer system, uh, depending on where computer systems end up and what's possible in terms of simulating consciousness, right? 
because you can do that to some people if you have have the computer computing capacity right and you have the proper models of people and so i the danger is not even that humanity will be exterminated in a in a uh, you know some something will be torturing a you know the few of us who are left it's that we may be able to create a whole bunch of conscious intelligence that we then torture right and that's it's eldritch how terrifying it is i think yeah. uh I, as far as regulatory regimes i'll make for my like last like what did we learn today sort of statement that i will make is and because it's the first thing on my mind uh if anybody has ever seen the show farscape which is i think my favorite science fiction tv show of all time mm-hmm. uh it's kind of obscure they showed it on sci-fi back in the early 2000s it didn't get too popular but like the whole crux of the show is uh the main hero john Crichton? some alien put in his head access to a weapon and it was called uh they're called wormhole weapons basically the ability to like create black holes and stuff and the entire arc of like all like five seasons of the show is they're running across the universe uh torturing and harassing and killing him and his friends and family and stuff so that they can get access to this technology which is apparently capable of wiping out entire fleets and uh john is constantly saying he's like no nobody can have this it's too powerful it's obviously by the way it's obviously an analog for like nuclear weapons but i feel like it's also one for ai but what happens is spoiler alerts for farscape by the way the climax of the show is john finally agrees to deploy in front of all the parties involved. He agrees to deploy the weapon. And, uh, you know, it basically swallows up an entire planet and its moon and, like, all the fleets involved. So the people fighting against each other both get taken in by this giant black hole. And he's like, oh, by the way, I'm not actually sure if I can stop this. So it might eat the entire, like, local cluster. Uh, And then finally he manages to shut it down and all the parties involved come together and they're like, we see what you're saying. Nobody deserves to have access to that. It's beautiful, it's dramatic, it's a wonderful ending to a sci-fi series. Here's the thing. He was able to end it, and then those parties were able to come together in an agreement. I think now more than ever, discussions of the negative potentialities of AIs need to be taken seriously. They need to be taken to a positive level. Because unlike nukes or wormhole weapons in Farscape... Mm -hmm. If some of these futures are even 50% true, there is no dramatic, compelling TV climactic event. It's just we are and then we aren't. Right. And so, and so you need to have your regulatory frameworks. You need to have your idea of what AI looks like sussed out before it ever happens. That's my thing. Is So we need to harden any systems we can against artificial intelligence, since they would probably have programming, you know, they'd be native to uh, technological systems in a way that we aren't, while we would be native to physical system, you know, physical reality outside of cyberspace in a way that they aren't. Um, But that could lead to a cold war between us and them, right, if they came to exist in that way. We need to not build anything like laws that would give them maneuver in physical space so that we can defend ourselves and harden our systems against artificial intelligence, which may not come with consciousness, may just just come as intelligence or capability, if you want to call it capability instead of intelligence to emphasize the, the difference. Um, and then we need to not create consciousness uh, in digital form. Uh, we need to, to simply not do it, as far as I can tell, 
because the potential for for suffering and abuse there is is too great. Um, and then we need to not create conscious intelligences with agency or intelligences with agency, even if they're not conscious, that exceed us in capability because we're not going to be able to to deal with them. And uh, we need to I actually think that we're going to be able to um, prevent these sort of dystopian or um, apocalyptic outcomes. But I think that it exists that futures exist where we can't futures exist where we can't because of the way computing works uh, that haven't been precluded by what we know now. Futures exist uh, based on what we know now that we can't rule out by what we know now where um, we could make mistakes that lead to these outcomes, just like we could have killed ourselves with nuclear weapons and almost did, but didn't. And uh, so yeah, we need to uh, very carefully monitor the situation and uh, not make it easier by creating laws, by creating these autonomous weapon systems. And uh, we need to, to not create the dystopia where they kill us, they torture us, or we torture or have to kill them because those are evil as well. Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle, and our closing track is Freeze Frame by Stay Loose. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com to send us comments, questions, and topic ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at culturecampcast, on minds.com at culturecamp, and give us a five-star rating on Spotify. Please share this episode to social media, and thanks for listening.